This message was recorded at North 2012, an event organised by Christ Central, part of New Frontiers. You can find out more about Christ Central by visiting our website, ChristCentralChurches.org. I want to uh, bring something to you tonight which you might think is slightly unusual. You probably think most of the things I bring to you are slightly unusual, but uh, this isn't a classic apostolic word. In fact, you probably would class this more as a pastoral word, and yet actually I believe it reverberates with apostolic truth and apostolic release. I want to get behind what Dave Fellingham prophesied so clearly to us today about unblocking these wells. I want to say that Christ's central churches, the sphere of churches that we're now serving, we're not trying to look for new ideas. We're not trying to look for new strategies. We're not trying to look for that which is new and trendy and different. What we are is expressing the DNA that God has already put within us as a movement, which I believe is rooted back into biblical truth and rooted right back, as Ginny so wonderfully uh, prophesied or rather interpreted tonight to our grandfather, Abraham, rooted back into him, rooted back into the promises of God that actually go right back into the promise to Eve to bless her seed, as David so brilliantly said this morning. In fact, they root further back than that into eternity past when God chose us in Christ. It's the same promises that we're reverberating with. But I do feel that we have got blocked up as individuals. We've got blocked up with a bit of cynicism. We've got blocked up with a bit of disappointment. And some of us are now thinking, well, another generation will do this. But actually, I really believe that God wants to unblock something in us personally tonight, maybe in our churches as well, but personally tonight, that's going to propel us as a movement of churches into the future, into inheriting what God has already promised us as a group of churches. We're not trying to invent something new. We're trying to step into that which he's already promised us together. And I want to talk on a really unusual subject In fact, I've been in Christian ministry certainly full-time for some 25 years, been in leadership perhaps for 30, been saved for 40, I know. I was only three, no, I was actually eight when I got saved. I have rarely heard anyone talk on this. I've certainly never heard anyone talk on this at a major conference. I've rarely heard it in church life. And I bet many of you haven't preached on this. I want to preach on how to handle weakness and vulnerability. Now, that's a, that's a surprise, isn't it? Normally, we're talking about strength. We're talking about going to the nations. But sometimes we hear these words, and actually our own vulnerability, our own weakness ties us down. And we feel we're disqualified. We feel that's a wonderful promise for David Devonish. That's great for Dave Holden. It may even be great for Dave Fellingham and anyone else called Dave. But my name isn't Dave and I'm not exactly, I just feel rooted to the spot. I don't feel that I can move in this because of my weakness and my vulnerability. In fact, it's my experience 
that every Christian in their life or their family will have encountered some degree of weakness and vulnerability. Now that may not be you. You may be sitting there quite happy, maybe even a little smug at the moment. My life's fine. I have no problems. I have no difficulties. I have no trials or troubles or weaknesses or vulnerabilities at all. Listen, you may not yet have received a prophetic word this conference. Let me give you one right now. One's coming very soon. Get ready. This word is really important for you. Because God in his sovereignty and his mercy will allow that which he's birthed in you to be matured through vulnerability and weakness. So therefore, as a people, we need to be really mature in this. We need to be really trained in this. We need to be really equipped in this so that the weak can say, I'm strong in God. The weak can say, they're strong in God. I love the verse in Proverbs. It says this in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16. Because some of you might be thinking, ah, he's talking about sin. He's talking about, and that gives me an excuse for my sin. Now listen, I'm not talking about sin. I'm not talking about an excuse for your little sin, your weakness. I'm not talking about that at all. In fact, this is what it says in Proverbs 24, verse 16. A righteous man falls seven times, yet rises again. Now, seven in the Bible doesn't necessarily mean six plus one or eight minus one. It is a numerology which has a sense of perfection to it, a sense of completion to it, a sense of keep going on in that sense. So what the writer there is saying in Proverbs is actually righteous men fall over but get up again. Righteous men. It's not talking about sin. It's talking about weakness, vulnerability, falling over, encountering difficulties, tripping up and yet rising again. The issue is not if you fall. The issue is can you get up in God and keep going in the Christian faith, in what Paul calls walking in the Spirit. Not standing or idling, but walking in the Spirit. So let me read to you the passage from the Bible. And then I'm going to ask a very dear friend of mine to come and give his story. Now we don't usually do this. We might have a video clip from a film. In fact, most of the stories we've given you here tonight and over these last few days, have been success stories, have been glory stories, have been ghost stories, holy ghost stories. They've been wonderful stories of growth and development and church planting and breakthrough. It's what I call the A, B, C of Christianity. Attendance, my church is growing, I'm doing really well. B, we have a building. Bigger than yours. Got much more potential. See, church planting. We're doing it out of our church. Not just your church, not just your movement, our church. We're doing it A, B, C. And we celebrate that 
And it's right that we celebrate that. It's right that we celebrate success. It's right that we celebrate God of the breakthrough who gives the increase. One plant, one waters, but God gives increase. God grows. God matures. It's to God that we give the glory, absolutely rightly so. However, we should also celebrate weaknesses, vulnerabilities, trials and tribulations to be biblically consistent. Let me just read this to you just before Julian comes up to share his story. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Famous verses talking about the thorn in the flesh. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord, take it away. But he said to me, no. My grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulty. For when I am weak, I am strong. Julian, why don't you come now and share your story of Perth. Let's welcome Julian Mott from King's Church, Perth. Happy yes, um, Jeremy asked me to share very briefly about the battle and the sense of weakness uh, that we went through and also about our need going forward as a church. And you don't often hear from a platform, as Jeremy said, about things going wrong with churches and things not working out as they should be. Well, we moved to Perth in 2009, I say we, that was Francis, uh, my wife, to, to help lead. And it certainly did not work out as we wanted. We entered an unbelievable battle. Um, and the church rapidly reduced in size. No, not by 5%, not by 10%, not by 20%. It's a lot worse than that. In fact, virtually half the church. And no one of those people, sadly, left, apart from one couple, left well. And we had the pain of people making poor decisions. And as a pastor, I know anybody here who's a pastor would know how painful that is. And there was all sorts of problems. And it all came home to me one day when I was preaching on Sunday morning. And I was preaching on, from the book of Philippians about unity. I was pouring my heart out preaching the, about the humility of Jesus and as I got to the end, somebody came up to me and I, I thought, oh, great, a response. And they said, uh, Julian, your house is on fire. And I, I misheard them because I couldn't believe what I was being told. And I thought they said, I was on fire. 
And I thought, fantastic. The Holy Spirit's moving. Yes. No, they said, Julian, Julian, your house is on fire. I said, what? Yes, you better go home. So I had to stop preaching. I had to run out the church building, ran down the road. And as I was running, I just felt incredible. I thought, I can't believe it. I'm preaching and my house is on fire. And yes, it was. I looked through my tears. I saw two fire engines. I saw an ambulance fire, you know, smoke pouring out of my house up into the morning sky. And it was so thick, you couldn't see from one side of the house to the other. And as I talked, mumbled to the firemen, um, incredible in weakness, because I had the whole of the street watching. You know, you've come to help plant a church, and there's the whole of the street watching your house on fire. I felt so weak and so helpless. And I then realized what a battle we were under. A huge battle for Scotland, huge battle to plant a word and spirit church, and the most of all, the huge battle there was for unity. And I just want to share a little bit more about Perth. Perth is where we were. If you want to bring the slide up very quickly, um, as a slide hopefully comes up. Perth is in the centre of Scotland and reflects very much of what Scotland's like. It's, a ne- it's in the heart of Scotland. You can't go mo- most places you go through Perth. And we realised it was really the battle was on for really establishing a church of unity, of apostolic and prophetic foundations. Well, thankfully, we're now in a completely new place. We've moved buildings. God's changed the heart of the church. And we received this word from Alex Rossi, Alan Rossi at the time, from Whitehaven. And he talked about God doing a new thing and us to be a model of a radical, new, grace-filled church. And you can see there, catch my heart, catch my rhythm of my heart. And God has changed the heart of the church. And we now have a vision to build a grace-filled unity with unity and friendship church in the center of this nation to see this nation turn around. And though we are weak, we are incredibly weak. And one thing that Jeremy asked me to do is put out a plea for people to join us and to come and build, help build this church. We've had two words uh, recently, one was from Liz Holden who came to the ladies thing in Edinburgh and she talked about a picture of a jigsaw piece and other pieces coming to needed to be placed in the jigsaw before other pieces would join and we felt very strongly that was us in Perth and also we had a word about a chocolate box as a church that we were still missing some pieces for the church to have the right foundations and to be built well. So I would call you, if you can, this may be a moment where God's stirring you. We need two families to join us. We need new worship leaders. We need a female youth worker, badly. And we need people from Scotland, if possible, but not always. We just want to, I wanted to ask you, and Jeremy said, do this. God may be stirring you for Scotland. Maybe he's stirring you to come and join the center and the heart of this nation and see a church that will be full of unity, reaching out to others and reaching out to the other parts of Scotland, and also serving the other churches, which we desperately want to do. So I just wanted to say that and share that. I can share more if you come and ask me, but I'll pass that to Julian. Thank you. Thanks, Julian.
That's integrity. That's sharing weakness and saying, and yet, in our weakness, we are being strengthened by God. And also an appeal to say, we're weak. Will you please stand with us? When one part of the body weeps, we weep with them. When one part of the body rejoices, we rejoice with them. So if you feel particularly stirred to get involved with Scotland and Perth, I wholeheartedly recommend Julian and Francis's leadership through this. To me, they've proved and demonstrated beyond doubt the quality and character of their leadership through this. And I believe a new foundation is being laid for a fantastic church in the heart of Perth. Truly, there's been a thorn in the flesh. What is this thorn in the flesh? It's a funny old phrase, isn't it? People argue about it. There are great religious theological tomes written about what the thorn in the flesh is. You've probably got a few ideas of yourself. Some people think it's more of a personal attack on Paul. You see, if I say to you, I've got a right pain in the neck in Manchester. You probably don't think I need to visit a chiropractor. You probably think I'm referring to somebody or some person. And some people think that phrase, thorn in the flesh, refers to a particular individual or particular group of individuals that were troubling Paul. Certainly that's true. Some people think it was literal, not a literal thorn, but it was something in his flesh. It was something in his body. It was some illness. Certainly when Paul goes to Galatia, he says, I I only came because of an illness, a weakness. I only came and you would have plucked out your own eyes to help me. That's a bit of a strange thing, isn't it? So if we're commissioning Dave Devonish to go to... uh, the Russias to go to uh, southern Russia, the North Caucasus, if we say, David, by the way, few of us would like to pluck our eyes out for you. He might say, well, thanks, but I'd rather a few thousand pounds in the offering. <laughs> you know, eye- eyeballs are nice, but uh, I don't... But, that, but if he had an eye complaint, it might kind of make sense. Now, maybe that Paul had suffered from a malarial uh, a condition, some theologians think, and <clears throat> perhaps he had a physical weakness in the flesh, and maybe it was that. Do you know what? We don't know. Don't waste your time trying to find out what it is. The commentators can't work it out. And I'm really pleased we don't know. I tell you why. If it was one thing, then 99% of us probably wouldn't identify with Paul. But because he is vague and general under the anointing of the Holy Spirit as he writes this, all of us can identify We can all say, yes, my weakness can be written in there. My vulnerability can be written in there. My name can be put in there. Artie Kendall wrote an excellent little book, actually, called, surprisingly enough, The Thorn in the Flesh, which I got hold of as I was preparing for this word. And these are just his subject headings. There's a chapter on every one of this, and he stresses in the preamble, in the introduction, none of these are about sin, although sinful could be our reaction to them. But these are common and rife in his uh, longevity, minister of Westminster Chapel in the past, now ministering more widely. R.T. Kendall says, I've seen all of these in my pastoral ministry. He then honestly says, and most of them in some time of my life, I've personally experienced them either in my life or my family's life. These are his subject headings. Loneliness, bad employment, an enemy, a handicap, a disability, 
an unhappy home, a sexual misgiving, not sin, he stresses, an unhappy marriage, a chronic illness, personality problems, financial struggles, an unwanted calling. Listen, this is what it feels like to have a thorn in the flesh. You are successful in every other area in life but this one. And for you, in this one, it's so painful. Faith seems to work for you in every other area but this one. And do you know what's really annoying? Faith works for everyone else in this area but not you. It seems like everyone else is successful. And your temptation, this is what blocks your well. This is what it does, and it blocks it with frustration, exasperation, anger, guilt, fear, and unbelief. And that blocks wells up. And I believe this word fits perfectly into what we've been prophesying about this morning, about more of the Spirit, more dynamism of the Spirit, a rising tide of the water of God. And we must be people who know what it is to declutter our wells, to get things out of our hearts that are in danger of blocking us up and stopping us moving forward in the purposes of God. Just to share some personal testimony. And by the way, when I share this, some of you will feel sorry for me. Some of you will go, is that it? Is that all? I thought you were talking about serious problems. My problem is much worse than yours, and always that's how it feels, because the thorn in the flesh always feels painful for you. You can see my thorn, but you can't feel it. Yours feels more painful. And I know there are people in this room, I know personally people in this room, who are suffering far more than I have ever suffered. But yet I want to share... My vulnerability, just a couple of examples. 20 to 25 years ago, Anne and I, been married a few years, decided that we would, uh, right time for us to start a family, we'd saved a little bit of money, bought a house, settled down, got things right, expected it to happen pretty quickly, as you do. You know, my friends seem to look at each other and get pregnant even if they didn't mean to. You know, it's just... And so we waited, and, you know, you wait a month. And there's a rather annoying reminder that comes around every month that it isn't happening, and it isn't happening, and it isn't happening, and it isn't happening. And then, of course, you start to talk to others, and they say, don't worry, don't worry. We know loads of people like this. In fact, there are loads of people in the Bible like this. Don't worry, it'll happen, it'll happen. Just wait, just wait. And another month and another month, and another month, and then they say, now go to the doctor. You go to the doctor, the doctor says, don't worry, don't worry, there's loads of people like this, just wait. Would you test if you like? Couldn't do anything, couldn't find anything out. This is before all the days of uh, modern technology and these things. So what do we do? We're handling such pain, we're handling such difficulties. We decide that we're not going to handle this privately on our own. By this time I'm leading the church or involved with church leadership and elder in my local church in Hastings. And we decide that whenever there's an appeal for barrenness, and I'll tell you what, in the 1980s into 90s, almost every meeting I went to there was an appeal for barrenness. 
Now we don't have that. I don't know why. Maybe that there's medical advances. Perhaps we look more to doctors than we do to God. But right now, it, right then, it was an appeal. Every meeting, it seemed to me, and Anne and I made this decision that we'd boldly go up and uh, stand in the line. And there was loads of people. I remember standing with people that I now know who have ha- happy families and stood in the line, see each other. Yep, you again. Yeah, us. Yeah, we're identifying. And when you first happened, everyone came to pray for us. It was great. We went to the Wimber Conference. You've got John Wimber, Mahesh Shavda. Uh, we went to all the New Frontiers Conference, Terry Verger. Everyone was, you know, because we're the bright young leaders. We're the bright young things. You know what happens when bright young people are responding in, in, in the meeting? Everyone wants to pray for them. So it's great. Everyone's praying for us. It's wonderful. Till next year, the conference comes around. And there we are. Here we are. A little bit shorter line this year. So-and-so's not there. Oh, oh, they've got a baby. Right, okay. Well, you're still here. That's all right. We're, yeah, you're here as well. Right, okay. Responding in, in the ministry. Terry doesn't come anymore. Uh, John Wimber hasn't noticed. Uh, Mahesh Shavda's not there. But there's some other elders. That's nice. They pray some nice prayers over you. And uh, sure, it'll be all right next year. Next year. Here we are in the line. It's got a bit shorter. There's a few more people with babies. Uh, this time, there's just a few young guys who come and stand with you. Uh, next year, we're standing in there, and nobody wants to pray, because nobody wants to associate with failure. Nobody wants to say, we understand. Nobody wants to associate with that. Now, I'm not critical of anybody. I'm just telling you how it has felt for us to have gone through barrenness, to have gone through difficulties, to have gone through that for some 30 years now. And handling the pain of that, handling that thorn in our flesh and deciding, are we going to go bitter with this? Are we going to turn inward with this? Are we going to say, oh God, why? Why is it when I pray for people? I've prayed for people in my own family. And God's answered their prayers in this area. I've prayed for loads of people. And they've got hit. Why? For me, I don't know. But I'm choosing to trust you, Lord. It's one example. Another example, many of you know, because many of you are kind enough to have followed us on Facebook or read the Twitter feeds that we give. This time last year, uh, the very beginning of August 2011, my little sister suffered a massive brain hemorrhage. We got a phone call late at night. You know when your landline rings late at night, it's never good news. The mobile, that's not so bad. Mates having a laugh, lucky my chat. But the landline, when the landline rings, you think... Uh oh, late at night, landline rings. It's my dad, your little sister, suffered a massive brain hemorrhage. She's not likely to live the night. What do you do? How do you handle that when there's nothing you can do? I'm hundreds of miles away. The next day, or within 24, 48 hours, I'm standing leading the meeting. What do I do? Do you know what? I confess my vulnerability to my church. I say, guys, look, this has happened. We're weak. Will you stand with us? We're praying this. We've walked through a very difficult year with Jo. She's still with us, praise God. This time last year, I didn't feel able to talk too much about it publicly, but this time last year, she was still in a coma. Now she's recovered from the coma. She's severely uh, disabled. She's in a rehab unit. She's been in hospital for 11 months now, a month in a rehab unit. She's 
starting to respond. God's doing some great things in her life, but it's still incredibly vulnerable. In fact, on the day before we came to North, the day before we come here, and I'm preparing this message. I'm actually feeling quite good about it. I'm kind of celebrating, you know, this is okay now. I can see some hand of God. It's my, it's my brother-in-law saying, your sister's just having a seizure right now. And I didn't even know what a seizure was. Apparently, it's actually not that worrying in the context but I'm thinking here we go again and it just presses in pain into your life and into your flesh how do you handle that that's me that's why I can rule myself out that's why I'm no good to you that's why I can't inherit the promises that's why I can't press in and what's your excuse it's probably much worse it's probably much more difficult But I know whatever it is, it's as painful for you as it is for me. What lessons can we learn from this passage? How can we come to a position of strength? Well, the first thing I want to say is this. Number one, I've learned. God is always sovereign. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. Who did he plead with? Who did he go to? Who did he say, help, help, help? He didn't just go to his small group, didn't just go to his team. Well, I'm sure he would have done those things. He went to the Lord. He appealed to the Lord. He went to God. And even though this was clearly a demonic attack in Paul's case, it was clearly an enemy attack. It was clearly something dreadful. He calls it a messenger of Satan. It's not good. I don't want a messenger of Satan knocking on my door. But he didn't say, it's dreadful spiritual warfare, you know. It's the enemy's fault. No, he knew it was warfare. He knew it was the enemy. But he saw that only God could help him and only God could remove it. That God himself was sovereign. We're not victims of circumstances. We're victims, if you can call it that, of the sovereignty of God. We are in his hands. He is controlling and working all things together for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. These things are not supposed to drive us to despair. They're actually supposed to drive us to God. That's what they're designed for. That's what God in his sovereignty and his mercy allows us to go through these things. I want to give you a quote from a lady called Margaret Clarkson who wrote a book called Grace Grows Best in Wintertime. Kind of an intriguing title. And she says this. The sovereignty of God is the one impregnable rock to which the suffering human heart must cling. The circumstances surrounding our lives are no accident. They may indeed be the work of the evil one, but even that evil is held firmly within the hand of our sovereign God. All evil is subject to him, and evil cannot touch his children unless he permits it. God is the Lord of human history and of the personal history of every member of his redeemed family. I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe God is working all things together for good. I believe that his fingerprints are all over things. I described it like this. I'm looking at a vessel that isn't in the right place in the room. 
It's worrying me. It's annoying. I don't want it there. But as I go and look at it, I see the fingerprints of God are all over it. God has been involved with this. I can see it in my sister's case. I can see it as she goes to the rehab hospital with the best rehab hospital, which is five minutes from where her husband and children now live. Five minutes walk. I see the fingerprints of God. It's not in the right... I don't want the vessel there, but as I look and I can see his fingerprints, I can see the senior doctor who is there happens to be an old friend of ours, happens to be a church planter from 30 years ago that we knew her and her husband really well. She's now the senior neuropsychologist. And guess what? She's the best in the world. She goes all over the world lecturing on this. She knows things. And she goes to our home church of Hastings, King's Church. You think, oh, some fingerprints of God in this. God is sovereign. How are you when things blow? How are you? What do you stand on when things blow? A few years ago, in 1987, before many of you were born, there was the great storm. The great storm of 87. Do you remember that? In the north it was a mild wind. But in Hastings where we were, it decimated places. In fact, where Roger and Cheryl lived in Seven Oaks became One Oaks overnight. The town that we lived in called Hastings, actually Alexandra Park, which is a beautiful park in the middle of Hastings. Alexandra Park, which has trees, specimens from all over the world. Trees went down like nine pins. Recently, Anne's even found the photographs of these magnificent trees that look just like matchsticks, and us sitting on them is incredible. In that one night, a whole generation, a whole forest of trees just went down in Alexandra Park because they'd never experienced such a hurricane before, and their roots and foundations were not that strong. They were just specimen trees in a nice park. Is that you? A little bit along the coast is the ugliest part of the United Kingdom I think I've been in yet. Sounds nice, Romney Sands. Dim church, it kind of sounds nice, but until you realise there was a reason they built the Dim Church nuclear reactor there and no one complained. (laughs) It's the only place in the world where they put a nuclear reactor which has made the scenery look nicer. It's bleak. It's desolate. It's made up of pebbles. It's horrible. Do you know when they looked and they found how many trees went down in Dimchurch and along Romney Sands? Because there are these old gnarled trees. They're the ugliest trees I've ever seen. These great gnarled trees. And they kind of lean that way. Do you know how many of those? Every tree went down in Alexandria Park. Do you know how many of those went down? None! And they said because they're, they're, they're used to the prevailing winds, their roots have gone right down deep. You see, God, in his sovereignty, uses these things to push our roots right down deep. And then the glory is we find out, do you know what, it's not even us holding on to him. We find out actually it's him holding on to us. I referenced this, uh, referenced this earlier today. No one can pluck you from his hand because you are his hand. You are the body of Christ. I love this verse in Timothy. 2 Timothy 2.19 God's solid foundation stands firm. 
what God is building in your life and God allowing circumstances to do it is to root you solidly into Christ so that when the winds blow, you stand. Secondly, God always has a reason. Paul says it was to keep me from being conceited. Now, it's easier to live with a thorn if you know why you've got the jolly thing. For Paul, he knew. For Paul, it was a humility issue from keeping him from becoming proud, arrogant, because of his great revelations. I'm not suggesting that I'm in that line or that you are in that line. I'm just suggesting it was a reason. There's certainly the reason of empathy. Whenever Anne and I hear of a childless couple... We don't go, yeah, serves you right. We know what that's like. We go, oh, we know what that's like. Let's pray. Whenever I hear now of someone who's had a brain hemorrhage, I don't go, oh, what was that then? I go, oh, I know what that's like. There's an empathy that happens in our hearts. 2 Corinthians 1.4, the God of all comfort who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. God enables us to receive comfort from Him that we might not just sympathise, which is to feel sorry for somebody, but to empathise, which is to feel the same as, and to help them in their need. However, the truth is, we probably just don't know why we're hitting these troubles. We probably just don't know why we have a thorn in the flesh. Two things I can tell you is this. One, it is for God's glory. Somehow, God is going to get some glory out of this because God is in the business of working everything to his praise and to his glory. See, disciples brought a man born blind and said to him, Who sinned? This man or his parents? I mean, that's the only two options. We know that sin must be involved with this blind man. Who? Which? One? And Jesus said, none. Neither. But this is so that God may be glorified. Did not God get some glory last night as we saw a blind eye open? I tweeted Guy Miller. I said, hope you're having a good time at West Point. We've just seen blind eyes open. (laughs) He said, wow. I'm going to share that tonight with our guys. They'll be so excited and thrilled. God's getting glory. And it's certainly for our good. I quoted that verse, and we quote this so inappropriately sometimes. You know, we quote it in a puncture. We quote it when the the DVD doesn't work. We quote it on Christian posters. I wish I could burn all the Christian posters. Sorry. If you love Christian posters, if I see another cuddly kitten or a hippopotamus in a bath with this verse on them, I I think I'll scream. But this is the verse that they underplay with that. Romans 8.28, which is such a robust verse. It's such a strengthening verse. It's such a strong verse that God works all things together for our good, for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. We love him and we are called according to his purposes and we can confidently declare, therefore God is working all things together. It just doesn't say for good. 
It actually says our good. God will work this out. Now, it may be that we don't even find out about this until eternity, when probably it won't matter an awful lot. <laughs> oh, now I understand it doesn't matter. Because <laughs> I've got Jesus, I'm seeing him face to face, I'm in the new heavens, the new earth, I'm exploring all this wonderful cooking that's going on in the Russian Caucasus, in the renewed community. He just got my attention. Uh, there's so much food in the Bible and there's no, lots of cultural heritage to look forward to in the new heavens and the new earth. I thought that was absolutely wonderful this morning. And Paul says these are only... I haven't got time to read it, but if you look in context, Paul lists all these dreadful things. The chapter before, he lists all these dreadful things that have happened to him. Shipwrecks, beatings, trials, tribulations. He just lists it one after the other. And then earlier he says, oh yeah, we've had a few light and momentary afflictions. You think, what? In the light of eternity, brothers and sisters, that's what these are going to feel like. In fact, James says this, we shouldn't resent trials as intruders. We should welcome them as friends. Come in. Wonderful. Another way that I'm going to go closer to God. <laughs> it's not my reaction. That's why James corrects me. This is what Jerry Bridges, I love Jerry Bridges' writing. I've noticed there's several of his books in the bookstore. He says this, God is in control of our pain and suffering. And he has in mind a beneficial purpose for it. There is no such thing, listen to this, there is no such thing as pain without a purpose for the child of God. God is sovereign in other people's actions, whether we believe it or not. And then he goes on to say, pastorally apply this. He says, our belief does not make it so, but the comfort God intends for us to derive from his sovereignty is dependent on our believing it. So in other words, whether you believe it or not, God is sovereign. He's working everything together for good. But God actually wants you to believe that so that you might get some comfort from it. That you might know that you have a good heavenly father who will not give snakes and scorpions, but will give good gifts to his children and will work everything together for your good and his glory. And they are not two separate things. Thirdly, God always provides all we need. My power is made perfect in weakness. Let me just give you a few scriptures to feel the weight of the Bible on this. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. 2 Peter 1, 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Hebrews 4.16 Let us approach God's throne of grace that we may find grace to help us in our time of need. Psalm 46 verse 1 God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. God always provides everything you need in the time, in the moment. We're not supposed to store up. The children of Israel were not supposed to store up manna for the next day, unless it was the Sabbath and it was a kind of miraculous day. But generally they were not supposed to store it up for the next day because God would give them today what they need. Jesus said to us to pray, give us our daily bread. 
when tempted, Jesus said, man doesn't live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, the implications, that's daily word. Do you know why? That's why I read this daily. It's why I eat daily. You'd probably work that out anyway. I, I eat daily. I, I love the word daily. I, I love to get the word into me daily. And sometimes this might be a huge shock to you, especially when reading through Leviticus, as David mentioned this morning. Sometimes it doesn't seem like it's doing me any good. But then sometimes the greens that I eat don't seem like they're doing me any good either. But my mum told me they would. And they have. And as we eat the word, as we feed on the word, do you know what? Actually, it's food for our souls. It's nourishing us. And I'm pleased that in a movement of grace, we're also a movement of discipline. We don't despise discipline. That we celebrate spiritual disciplines. That we're being discipled daily by one another and by him. The morning after I heard about my sister, I had confessed I had an awful night's sleep. Bad. I woke up many times in the night praying, crying, asking God. I love my little sister. Help her. She's got three young children. She's got twins, all girls, twins of eight and a little one of four at that age. And I'm thinking, oh God. I woke up the next day, went downstairs. I did not feel like reading my Bible. It's the last thing I felt like doing. But I, I got out and I read the Lord. And I started to read. And my reading was Psalm 91. And I read this. With long life, I will satisfy. And it's Psalm 91. It's all about in times of trouble, coming to the Lord. But that phrase, with long life, I'll satisfy. It just stuck in my heart. It just got in under my skin. It just got to me. And I said, yes, I can attach my faith to that, Lord. That's the word of God for me with long life. She's not going to die. Now, she was told she wouldn't go through the night. Her husband was asked, is it okay for us to turn the machine off? He had a really agonizing decision to make on that. By the time he'd made his decision, it was out of his hands anyway because they decided to whisk her up to London. They decided they would do some surgery the next day. They decided they would do two brain operations on her they said there's no there's no guarantee that she'll come through at all in fact we may do more damage by the operation than has been done by the hemorrhage the next day i read the bible and it was about the life of david in my reading plan and it said long life will be given to him twice then i read again the next day i got to solomon and it was prophesied over Solomon that long life would be given to him. I felt God was speaking to me about long life. I kind of got it. I've never seen that before. I've never noticed it since or before. But in the moment, those three days, the word of God came to me. Just before North last year, the week before North, Anne and I went to visit Reese and Sarah. We had a lovely time with Reese and Sarah. They were so gracious to us. They took us to the theatre. We took them for a meal. We had great fun together. But I worked out that my sister was only two stops along the train from where Reese and Sarah lived at the Elephant Castle. Up to this point, my brother-in-law had decided it wasn't suitable for any of us to visit my sister because of the state she was in. That's his prerogative. It's his right to do that. We respected that. But I phoned him up and said, Clive, can I please visit my sister? I'm only two stops along the line from her. He said, go to her. She's, I think she's already gone, but go to her. The moment we walked into the hospital ward and started to engage with the staff, 
They wanted to explain how awful she'd look. I've seen people with head injuries. I, I know what tubes and are like. But actually in the moment you see past all that. You just see the person you love anyway. And they started to, and I started to ask questions. And as I asked, Joanna started to stir from her coma. And they said, well, she's not been doing this before. That's interesting. And as we started to talk more, she stirred more. And they said, it's probably the sound of your voice. Probably, see, she's younger than me. She's never known, poor girl. She's never known what it is not to know the voice of her annoying brother. And somehow it was getting into her subconscious and suddenly she was stirring from this. At that very moment, Joanna's curate, and I use that word deliberately, Joanna's curate enters the ward. Now she... is a lovely woman, but was dressed in one of those flowery shirts with a dog collar. I was not impressed. She went to the bed and she started talking to Joanna with us. And she said, first of all, she said, as it says in James, call the elders and let them anoint you with oil. She said to me, I brought some oil in. I, I thought, at least there's one elder here. I've got some prejudice. <laughs> I didn't let it show. <laughs> she anoints Joe with the sign of the cross. I think that's a bit weird. I, I, you know, I just dab it on when I do it. She anoints Joe with the sign of the cross. Suddenly Joe's stirring all over again. And she says, and I have to, I've, I've repented of this. Because <laughs> Anglicans can hear God. <laughs> Very well. Better than me. She said, I've got a word for Joe. She opens it up. It's Psalm 91. She says, God's spoken to me there, spoken to me this for Joanna. And, she, and I said, oh, God, that's right. A little bit later that day, in fact, Naomi, who brought the interpretation to the tongue that Anne gave this morning, or one of the interpretations, part of the interpretation package, she texted me, one of our young leaders, texted me, said, I've got a word, she'd heard, I've got a word for you, for your sister. Psalm 91. Last time I visited Joe in hospital, she's now in this rehab unit, we wheeled her into the chapel. There, open, big lectern Bible. Guess where it's open? Psalm 91. Everywhere I'm looking, Psalm 91. God's promising long life. God gives you grace to help in time of need. God gives you provision just when you need it. Number four, God always gives strength to the weak. For my power is made perfect in weakness. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. This is totally consistent with God's heart and God's promises. Isaiah 40 verse 29, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Psalm 18 verse 32, it's God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. It seems that it's God's very heart to give strength to those who know they're weak. In fact, it seems to be God's very sovereignty that he chooses the jolly weak in the first place. So different from the world's opinion. You saw Joe Crummy from Fredericton, Canada, on the video this morning. When Joe went to a seminary in Canada, he was told these very words. Never let them see you're vulnerable. You'll only let them down. Totally wrong modelling 
Bible's full of God choosing weak people. Moses, Gideon, Peter. In fact, it seems the very basis of God's choice of you who think you're so strong. 1 Corinthians 1.27 God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God uses our weakness. He humbles us, and it humbles us in our weakness and it's an opportunity for him to display his power. Now, I asked this question in Teesside. The answer was given to me, Jesus, because the answer is always Jesus. I said, which character in the Old Testament... Clue. Don't get clever about Christophanes. Which character in the Old Testament is most known for his physical strength? The answer is? Jesus. No, Samson, that's right. Now, what is it? Why does it... See, Delilah gets asked a question. What is the great secret of his strength? Now, we all find out it's in the hair and all that, but... If Samson, see when I was a kid, we had these kind of cartoon Bibles and Samson was this great muscular guy. You know, really big muscles. If he was a great big muscular guy, we know the secret of his strength, his muscles. He's big, he's been working out. It's not the secret of his strength. Actually it says that when Samson was captured, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and made him strong, empowered him. That was the secret, actually, of his strength. It was kind of tied up weirdly in the hair with the vows and all that, but actually it's in the empowerment of the Spirit of the Lord. To admit our weakness is to admit our dependency on God, our need for his empowering. To quote my friend David Holden on the front row here, admitting weakness... It's not a weakness, it's a strength. Only Dave could say that. Fifth and final point, I'm called to boast about it. Therefore I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest upon me. It's so important, dear friends, that we don't mask our lives. Now I'm not asking you to invent weaknesses. That would be wrong as well. I'm asking you to live transparent lives, to live open lives, to live vulnerable lives, to be open before people. So it's interesting, the context of this passage, preachers always put the passage they're preaching on in context, the context of this passage is so-called super apostles, you know, sap across their chest, coming into town and wooing over the Corinthians who Paul had planted that church, but these super apostles who've never had any weaknesses at all, who have great revelations from the Lord, who are powerful and mighty and don't get put in prison and don't have shipwrecks and never have 40 lashes and always are strong and mighty coming to town. And the Corinthians are going, wow, super apostle or a guy who gets shipwrecked? Super apostle? Or the guy who has 40 lashes. Super apostle? Or the guy who seems to have weak eyesight. Super apostle? I think super apostle we'd like. Who wouldn't like super apostle to come to your church? And suddenly, 
They were being wooed over. Now, what does Paul say? He could say, my revelations are much better. My power is much better. Listen, I've seen the dead raised. Listen, I've seen this happen. I've seen that happen. If you knew the great revelations I've had, I've been caught up into the third heaven. You know, I, I, know, I knew a man, it's me, by the way, I knew a man who was caught up into the third heaven. You know, Paul's not afraid sometimes to say those things. But actually he doesn't. He says, this is the qualification I have to lead you. I'm weak. I'm vulnerable. But actually, it's in that place of weakness and vulnerability that I receive power from the Lord. Because I'm no longer reliant on my own strength. I'm no longer reliant on my own reputation. I'm not longer reliant on my ability. I'm so crying out for God that if I do anything, it must be because God empowers me, because it's not out of my own resources or my own ability. And dear friends, as we grow as a movement, we get some reputation. We start to settle back on that. Listen, I want us to keep in a place of weakness and vulnerability so we can celebrate Julian's story and stand with him and say, he hasn't seen the numbers we've seen. Go, oh, that's us. And reach out to him and pray. Now, the, this is not appeal to be weak. Please hear this. This is an appeal for the weak to be strengthened. Right? This is what it says in Joel 3.10 as I come in for a landing here. Let the weak say, I'm really pathetic. <laughs> no! He says, let the weak say, I'm strong. Let the weak say, I'm receiving strength from heaven. Let the weak say, he empowers me. Let the weak say, I'm positioning myself now for God's power to come upon me and for him to clothe me with power. And for then when I do exploits and then when I see the sick healed, when I see eyes open, nobody's asked me who laid hands on the guy. Because it don't matter who laid hands on the guy last night because I think it was Jesus who healed him. And it's when we're in a position of weakness and we pray, we give the glory back to him. When we're doing it out of our own ability, power, I'm the one. No. Dear friends, as the band comes back up tonight, it's a rather unusual apostolic word. But I believe we've got to get out of our hearts some cynicism, some frustration, some guilt, some unforgiveness maybe, some disappointments, some frustrations. And we've got to say, Lord, actually I'm weak. Actually, I'm a jar of clay. But you know what happens with jars of clay? They get filled with glory. And nobody notices the jar. They see the glory of God. Dear friends, if we're going to be a movement of the Spirit, and with all my heart, I believe we are and will be, as Dave was prophesying earlier, we need to be those who weakly come, who come vulnerably, and say, Lord, will you fill this vessel? Because the Lord loves to fill weak vessels. The Lord has chosen weak vessels and loves to fill weak vessels with his spirit. Now, I believe there are lots of us, as these guys just start to play, I believe there are lots of us tonight 
who need to respond to this word. There's a few surprises here. I didn't think he'd respond. I didn't think she'd respond. I thought they were strong. No, we're weak. We've got no reputation here tonight. We want to be weak people, mighty God. We want to be those who receive the strength of the Lord. Dear friends, why don't we all stand now before him in response? I'm going to pray. And my prayer is this, that you tonight would acknowledge your weakness before him and that in your weakness you would receive a power encounter of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God would fill you tonight. I'm just going to pray now. Why don't you just lift your hands. Lord Jesus, we respond to you tonight. We confess our utter weakness and dependency upon you. We say, Lord, we're really cracked pots. We're really jars of clay. Lord, we're really very vulnerable. Lord, we're not talking about sin here tonight, but we are talking about weakness. We are talking about vulnerability and trials and difficulties. And we don't feel, Lord, that we're able in ourselves to achieve all your great prophetic promises. And the truth is, Lord, we're not. But you are the Lord who equips. You are the enabling God. And I ask you tonight, Holy Spirit, that you would hover over this meeting and that you would cause weak vessels to be so filled with power and authority that you'd send us out from here more aware of the power of the Spirit than we are of our own weakness. We'd be more aware that God is able than we're disabled. We'd be more aware that you're on us and that you're filling us than that we're weak and disabled. We want the weak to say, I am strong in God. I'm empowered by God. I'm filled with his spirit. Lord, you turn weakness to strength. You did it in Samson. You're going to do it in us. And I'm asking you tonight to come on us. Now, if you want to respond to this word very quickly, because we haven't got a lot of time now, very quickly, why don't you come out? Why don't you say, come forward and say, I'm a weak one. I need to be filled.